This is Philip Meyer, welcoming you to another episode of Talking About Platforms. We present and discuss relevant discoveries from the field of platform research. Hi, I'm Daniel Trabucchi. In every episode, we have a guest sharing with us one of his or her latest papers on platforms to make it accessible for everyone. And with that, let's jump right into the conversation. Hello, hello. Perfect. Uh, hi. hi, Milan. Hi, Daniel. Welcome hi, to Philip. this episode of Talking About Platforms. We have a very... Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. We have a very exciting guest and I am super happy to introduce him, Milan Miric. He is an assistant professor of data science and operations at the University of Southern California, Marshall School of Business. Uh, Milan completed his doctorate of business administration at the CBS, Copenhagen Business School, and he regularly publishes his work in top academic journals and acts as a reviewer in different fields, management, operation, science, information, systems research, among others. And Milan's research is especially about how firms can capture and create value in digital industries. And this prepares him as a perfect guest for our uh, cast about uh, platforms in digital industries. And um, Daniel, let's jump right in. Thank you, Philip, and welcome, Milan, to this episode of Talking About Platforms. The first thing that we'd like to ask you is, you know, all of us here, all the people invited here, talks about platforms. We are studying platforms. We enter in this world of platforms somehow. But what's your story there? So how you enter in the world, in the research world of platform? And moreover, what is a platform to you? How would you define it? Okay, so um, I, like most things, I'm not necessarily sure how I got in it, or I'm not sure that the story I remember is the right one. But um, I think when I started my PhD, I was interested in something entirely different. Um, but then, you know, that was around 2009, 2010. And so there was a lot of interesting things happening around, you know, things like smartphones and um Specifically, the you know the iPhone was released, and the way that we you know think about mobile telephones kind of changed. Um, and so there was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of interesting things there. Um, and once I found out about that academic literature, I started becoming more and more interested. And I realized that there were all these industries where, you know, um, some 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 notion of you know complementarities interoperability network effects were actually shaping things and so i really loved these you know stories about betamax or you know thinking about these kind of old technologies which were determined by this um you know and so i started the more i learned about that the more i kind of got excited about it i didn't necessarily have some historical kind of data set to go study but i i, I found these contexts very interesting and then I saw that there was an interesting opportunity to study platforms within the space of that new emerging area of mobile telephony. Um, you know, the paper we'll talk about today kind of came out of that, but you know, I think there was a lot of really interesting questions. And I think they'd be, that led me to a whole bunch of other things saying, to what extent is you know, what we know in the off-platform world actually true in this space of digital platforms? And so I've moved over to be somebody who studies platforms, but somebody who's also really interested in this digital space and why things are different or similar. 
Um, regarding my definition of what is a platform, you know, I think of it as something where, like my, you know, what I said before, there's some degree of, of interoperability or there's something kind of network effects, right? So we're bringing some, some group of people together and the more that those entities are together, the more value that they, that they generate. So, um, you know, I think that the example that always comes up and it's a consequence of studying this thing that, you know, they talk about the video game industry is because, you know, a video game console without any games is utterly useless, but the more, games you have the more people you have around it the more value it grows and so you know and it's it's interesting often to talk about that example because it you know the, the video game console is not useful for anything else right if i said a mobile phone you could say oh but you know you could still call from it you could still do this and so i think of that kind of technology or tool that brings everybody together now there's two parts of that there's one part which is the technology itself so there's a tool or a product of some kind that is an interface between people and, and other, you know, complementary things, technologies, add-ons, games, whatever you want to have, call it. Um, and so that's something that you can think of these industries as. They're a technology that brings people together, but there's also an element of like a platform business model, which is to say that they've thought about that and they've designed it in such a way as to incentivize all of these folks coming together, right? And so I think it's both of those. Cool. So everything started from, from games. <laughs> we can say that's kind of platforms. Yeah. Great, Philip. Go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah. Let's let's jump right uh, into the piece that you already uh, mentioned and that we want to discuss today. Um, and I like found it personally particularly interesting because I had one of the early iPhones uh, and I thought about. Uh, like using a jailbreak and bringing on uh, one of the like non-official apps, but I decided against it because I don't know, I, I was fearful and I didn't want to try it out to not break the, break the device. Uh, so I didn't do it, but I was very excited uh, when I read about the piece. The piece has the title, Does Piracy Lead to Product Abandonment or Stimulate New Product Development? Evidence from mobile platform-based developer firms. Um, it's written, written by uh, Milan and Lars Bo Jeppesen and published 2020 in Strategic Management Journal, one of the top journals in the field. Milan, would you please uh, introduce the piece to us and to our listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, you know, the paper is, as you said from the title, and it's, it's clear, it's about piracy, but it's important to talk about what piracy means, right? So um, in this context, it's software piracy, you know, not high seas piracy or something like that. But when you're thinking about software piracy, what that basically is, is a violation of copyright. So you're getting unauthorized access, you're sharing or you're copying software without being allowed to, meaning without paying the software provider for the, for the right to do that. And that framing around copyright is I think at the core of this paper. Um, so what happens when people talk about piracy, specifically companies that are being pirated, right? This can be, you know, um, software creators. This is often the case also for like music and, and video. There's this narrative that this ends up costing people money and by costing people money, meaning the creators money, they're gonna create less. And so it's gonna have this negative effect of innovation. The majority of people that measure that measure the side where it costs money, 
right? And there's evidence in some cases that it does. There's evidence in some cases that it doesn't. Nothing is completely black and white, right? So I don't want to, you know, I, I want to say up front that I'm not saying that piracy will always be good or will always be bad. Everything is a matter of, you know, degree and kind of conditions. But um, in some sense, this narrative is always put forth as saying it's going to affect really innovation. We're not going to have new music coming out because artists aren't going to be able to generate revenue. People are going to stop investing in developing software, you know, all kinds of, of negative effects of this. But that second part is not really studied. Mostly the first part is studied that you lose money or, you know, somehow there's, there's some negative effect. So in some sense, that's been assumed, but it hasn't really been tested because that's quite difficult to measure. We saw an opportunity to measure that and to actually quantify whether this was the case or when. Now, you know, is there a reason why we might think that's not true, right? That seems like a pretty compelling argument. Um, you know, I, I remember late 90s, 2000s, there were all these, you know, even television commercials making this argument, right? So it was, you know, in some sense, it's a pervasive argument. So the question is, is there any reason why it might not be true that would warrant this, this whole exercise? Um, and so given that we think about it as copyright, it's a monopoly, right? So copyright gives you exclusive rights to, you know, sell a product. You create, you write a book, you have copyright over that, you have exclusive rights that nobody can copy the book without your permission. Um, and, you know, you sell that permission for a licensing fee or something like that. So one thing, if you think about it as copyright, as a monopoly right, is that the content creator doesn't necessarily have an incentive to innovate as long as they have that product out in the market, right? So you could say, okay, well, you know, I've released this product and now I'm going to wait until that product kind of loses its, you know, loses steam in order to come and create a new product. And so really it's not necessarily clear that by giving you this exclusive monopoly, right? In some, in some cases, by you making no money from it, you're gonna be less likely to innovate. But, you know, is it the fact that just because you have this, you're more likely to innovate? Well, not necessarily, right? There are conditions under which if I, if I say, look, you know, you have to constantly develop new products because the ones that were pirated, you know, you have a shorter window and you have to innovate more, then you could imagine that it could in some instances create innovation, and I think it's important to understand this, right? So there is some tension, there's some lack of clarity, and it was important to study this. So that's what we basically set out to do. <clears throat> and we tried to study this using a piracy event. So trying to look for something where somebody got pirated so that we could study this. Um, of course, that's not easy to do. There's a variety of things that you would like to observe in order to have a, let's, let's say like a, empirical test that would pass muster, right? So you wanna have a whole series of different ways that you could look at this in order to guarantee it's not just, you know, any other set of things that could be happening at the same time. So one area where we found this was in something called the jailbreak community. And, you know, if you give me just a minute, I think it's helpful if I introduce that as well, because I think Definitely. that's a very interesting setting. So um, a lot of folks don't know when I was a doctoral student presenting this, um, doctoral students, I think, are often known for studying, you know, kooky settings. So I don't think people mind it, but people were often like, you know, we have no idea what this is about. Um, and so, you know, basically, if you look at when the iPhone was released, <clears throat> if you remember, there was this company called Nokia, which was dominating, you know, mobile phones. Um, and Nokia had an open system. They had an open platform. They had all these things that were really good, right? You could change your ringtone. You could change your background. You had all those things that were really great. What people might not remember, especially thinking about iPhones today, was back then when, you, when Apple released its first iPhone, you couldn't do all those things. 
right? You couldn't install your own third-party apps. So there was no such thing as an app store. Um, you couldn't change your ringtone besides the small set of ringtones that they had. You couldn't record video. Uh, you could take photos, you couldn't do video. You had, um, there was something else that they restricted, which I forget. But basically it was far inferior to things like Nokia that were basically the standard of the time, right? And you have these really interesting anecdotes from some of the hackers that were, um, you know, behind this community where they basically said kind of, you know, my iPhone was so far inferior to my, you know, Nokia, but I, I wanted to have this feature on the iPhone. So I set about trying to find a way to make it work. And so within a few months of the iPhone's release, somebody had found out a way to basically get iPhone to install code that Apple wasn't allowing you, right? So you could have done that with your Nokia, but Apple restricted it. And so people started, and that was basically jailbreaking. It's a hack in order to install this stuff on your phone. Um, but basically out of that came a mobile app marketplace and came a mobile app developer community. And that actually came long before the app store. Um, early on, there were a lot of concerns that this would lead to viruses. This would lead to all kinds of problems, as I think you were saying, Philip, for your own, your own sake, why you didn't do it. Um, and, and that was in part true. I think especially early on, there were a lot of concerns about that. This was not something that a lot of folks were familiar with. But at the same time, that community generated a lot of really important innovations. I think a lot of what we take for granted today, um, there's this fantastic video by a reporter called David Pogue from the New York Times, recorded something like 2010, where he shows how he installed these jailbreaks apps on his iPhone. And, you know, he has all these crazy things showing kind of, you know, you could use your accelerometer in your phone, right? So if, I don't know if anybody's going to see this, but if I'm holding up my phone like this, and then I turn it like this, we're now accustomed to, you know, the, the, the fact that that's our accelerometer and that we could do it. But basically that was the only thing that the old accelerometer on the iPhone used to do, right? Turning your phone so you could type sideways. And, you know, what he shows is early on, these developers came up with ways to use that, that you could do all kinds of different things with that, right? And so a lot of the innovations we see in phones today came out of this community. They existed for up until very recently, they became you know, an important source of many of these innovations. And then as Apple started launching its own app stores, you know, I think you had a mainstream market and then you had this kind of, let's say alternative marketplace for apps that Apple did not allow. So there's still things that, you know, until recently Apple didn't allow, they didn't allow you to have themes on your device, right? It all, you know, all iPhones kind of look the same. And so if you wanted to theme your device, you had to go to jailbreak, things like that. So, this parallel community that, excuse me, that contained all this um, interesting software and they had you know, highs and lows. So when Apple was particularly restrictive, there were less, um, because you had to hack your iPhone, you know, there, were, there were less apps being developed. People were less excited about it because it was harder to get the things on your phone. Um, when people got a breakthrough and a new Apple device, all of a sudden there was a surge of innovation because people were trying to find all the new fun ways to do things. And you know, it's a remarkable community. They've done really many um, wonderful things. Um, it's important to say that piracy was not the central goal of that community. So often they were criticized as saying, oh, it's a way to get pirated apps. But actually that is something that they tried to keep out of the main community. There were folks around that tried that, but the main, let's say, or at least how I would see the main jailbreak community was a set of folks that were trying to 
basically develop apps that Apple would not allow on the App Store, but that were perfectly legal. There was something that you could have gone to Android market and gotten, for example, right? Um, and so within that community, so I just want to highlight, I'm not studying pirate software on there, but within that community, what it provided was there was a unique, there was a unique moment when the community itself got pirated. So people were selling software, just like an app store within that community. And all of a sudden, one day somebody had said, you know, we logged in the server, we copied everything and we posted it online. And you would have, you know, you could go on an app and you could download for free everything that you had to pay for on the store before. And so this provided kind of a unique situation in which to study piracy because it met all these conditions that I was saying before. So we had a group we could look at that was being pirated. So these were software that, you know, basically until that point had not been available. And then all of a sudden became free, became available for free. So they had been pirated. They've been pirated all at once, which meant that it's not as if, you know, one product had received more competition overnight or something. So there was a variety of, you know, empirical things that you could account for that way. Um, and then, you know, we could compare that against products that were free. So you could say those products didn't really get affected because, you know, they were free before they were free after. So piracy doesn't really affect them. You could compare to products from Android, for example, which, um, you know, is a, is a completely separate marketplace. So it didn't have this effect. So there's a variety of ways that we could compare this. Um, and so that's what we did. What we found basically, just to give the short insight, is these, you know, piracy events where they really had an effect was small updates, right? So when you open your phone, it's constantly doing small updates, bug fixes, you know, fixing errors in compatibility, fixing errors in visuals, all these small things. Developers spend a lot of time and effort on that because that's what makes the experience good. And that's actually what had a negative effect from piracy. What we didn't find was we didn't find that there was any effect on kind of major updates. So big innovations, they weren't being really affected. And that's kind of consistent with our earlier arguments to say, you know, it's not necessarily clear that major shocks would be affected because there's still a reason for you once a small innovation gets killed to go out and try to create a bigger one, right? You know, you, your, your innovation, your previous product got affected by piracy, but maybe you want to create something new and you want to create something drastically different so that people want to get the new product. At the same time, really, are you going to sustain? Are you going to invest? in product upkeep maintenance for you know, smaller products that were pirated? Probably not. And so really that's kind of where we hopefully add a little bit of texture to this conversation to say, you know, what's the impact of piracy on innovation? You know, is it killing these big blockbuster products? Probably not. Not to say that we're measuring blockbuster products, but just generalizing from what, what we're finding, you know, probably not. But where it might be having an effect is really kind of you know, in terms of making the product seem uh, you know smooth dealing with bug fixes and, and and I think we draw a parallel in the paper you know with things that are more like open source software or you know you're not necessary if you have a community that's kind of open like that and where it's hard to you know control IP it's not necessarily excuse me not necessarily that you'll get less innovation but I think you'll get less of this kind of bug fixes polish problems you know maintenance and things like that because that's expensive and not necessarily worthwhile if you know people can get a free version and aren't willing to pay for it. Wow, thanks. That's definitely an interesting story and a very, very nice paper. 
And uh, I don't know, Philippe, if, if you thought the same, but it's somehow get me, getting me back in the time. So when the term privacy, um, piracy was actually one of the hot topic, you know, when CDs were copies, where, when games were copied, where movies were being downloaded outside Netflix. So it was very interesting to see how you've been modeling uh, this, uh, this phenomenon in the world of platforms. And, you know, I, I was wondering, you said something very interesting. Uh, first of all, that the jailbreaking community was not something meant to piracy, but was actually meant to do something completely different. And at the same time, you were highlighting the huge differences that say between Nokia and their approach to the kind of app store they were having and what Apple decides to do. So on the one end, a very open approach, on the other, a very close uh, approach, even then open in a, in, a, in a different way. If you have to like uh, consult or, or, or speak to a manager that is creating a similar kind of platform, how would you help him or her in dealing with this phenomenon of, of piracy? Because at the same time, you were obviously highlighting the negative impact that piracy have for the creators, but also some positive effect that it has on the whole system. Yes, yeah, so absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I, I definitely think that there are, and this is you know something that's not, often discussed, but it's very clear in some sense of software and music in these industries that they've, you know, existed and thrived, right? Um, and, and so you, you kind of have to really think about what piracy means. Um, I, you know, in some sense it's talked about as, so I'll draw a parallel with another industry that I think helps illustrate this point. So, you know, if, if you think about why you know, I not not you know not because somebody might hear us, but I'm willing to bet none of us have gone and downloaded a pirated movie lately, right? And that's probably because we have Netflix and streaming more so than we have anything else, right? I don't think it's that you know we got older and we're less interested in it or more worried about it. I think it's just that you know we have Netflix and we can go get it. And so, you know, it's it's important to think about why or what has changed. So previously. You know, I think there's this conversation around, oh, you know, piracy is killing our revenues because we can't force people now to watch. But what that meant was that you either had to go to the store and pay, you know, you had to incur this cost, especially for new products, that, things that came out that were relatively expensive um, to, to, you know, rent, um, or you had to basically get the TV channel that was going to have this thing, and that TV channel was spent by uh, as a bundle. So... You know, for instance, here I get constant offers. So I don't have a TV subscription, but I have streaming. And so I constantly get these offers to say, you know, only for $97 a month, you could have this thing, which, you know, is 15 times what I pay <laughs> for, for some platform. Um, and so you, you end up having this, this, this kind of model, which basically forced you to spend a lot of money in order to get and, and get a bunch of things you don't want in order to get that one piece of content that you wanted. And so you went to, to streaming, right? And so I, I think that, or you went to piracy. And so I think in many ways, the, the form of piracy created a lot of diffusion. Um, and I think it was in many ways a driving force for what we're seeing now where, you know, folks said, okay, well, I prefer to actually 
just consume that piece of content. And so then streaming and these other you know, platforms came in and basically started offering that, right? People were willing to pay in order to watch library content that these studios or these companies didn't necessarily value so much. So it was kind of a win-win. And for the consumer, it was a great opportunity because now you could watch this content without going through it. So I think in many ways, piracy represented this first kind of iteration of this unbundling that we're now seeing, right? You could go and, you know, you could stream a song without having to pay for the whole album, right? And mind you, that was the business model that they used to force you to buy 10 songs when you wanted only one. So, um, you know, in many ways it drove for that. I don't know if without piracy and, and the way that that happened, whether we would see the streaming that we do today. Um, but in many ways, I think, you know, rather than thinking of it just as a, as a negative thing, I think it's helpful to think about the, the reason that people did that was not just that they, you know, didn't want to spend 99 cents, you know, or they didn't want to spend $1.50 to, to watch some movie. It's that they had to spend, you know, everything was bundled. They had to buy all these packages and now they have an opportunity to consume it kind of one by one. Um, and mind you, sorry, that's not to say that it's still not costing these companies because, you know, there's these expressions where you would say, um, I've heard folks from like the TV industry say, you know, we used to make real dollars on DVDs and now we make cents off streams or something like that, right? So it's, you know, it's not that streaming is super lucrative in compared to what that, that model was. So there is still a loss of revenues and that you could argue that it's still potentially affecting the type of content that's made. Um, you know, on the other hand, we could look at this streaming world and say we have far better content at a lower price. So. Uh, it's 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 very interesting what you were saying. It's it's like if this less regulated world of privacy can somehow anticipate some of the trends that that will come after. So probably for platforms managers, it it, it can be interesting to monitor what's happening in this gray area to to assess it. Uh, I read somewhere that some of the founders of some music platforms were actually guys that were very, very active in the BitTorrent community. So actually in the world you were mentioning. So it's, it's definitely a nice uh, view on, on the role that this phenomenon can have for, for platform development. Yesterday, thinking about this, uh, this podcast, I was on Instagram and uh, I've seen uh, uh, an Instagram story from an Italian influencer that was like saying, uh, you know, guys, so this is not really a question. I'm, I'm more sharing something and I'd like to know if, what, what you think about it. Uh, there was this guy saying, you know, guys, I'm uh, spending a lot of time in writing my own stories. He's actually a guy that talk about uh, technolo technology, innovation, strange things around the tech world. And he usually create, really creates content. So a set of stories saying, you know, I've seen this product, it's working like this, you know, behind the scenes, this is what they are doing with data, things like that. And uh, he was saying in this story, there, is, there are a lot of you that actually write me, write me saying that there are other people taking my content, my stories, and actually publishing them on their profiles without tagging me without saying that I was the one behind them. And, you know, on the one end, I'm kind of happy that my contents are liked and are spread. On the other is kind of sad because it really takes a lot of time for me to, to develop those, those contents. And 
I guess when I was a teenager uh, in, and looking at piracy from the music and movie and games world, uh, I was feeling it as something very, very far. Today, it is becoming a topic that is not so far from many, many, many people. In the end, the three of us are actually creating content that could be the object of, of piracy some, somehow. So probably this idea of uh, using the content generated by someone else for different purposes is, is also enlarging. So do you think this can have some sort of influence on, on what you studied or anyhow on your opinion on, on piracy? Um, so I think that there's a very interesting and unexplored area around IP for user-generated content, right? And and what makes sense. And I was, you know, having conversations with somebody recently about, you know, this question of like licenses, which was very similar, you know, in terms of when I choose to offer my content, what kind of license, assuming that I would somehow be able to enforce it, you know, because there could be a trade-off whether people end up using more of it or they end up, you know, um, so whether it creates more diffusion or not. And I think in many ways, that's the, the tension that I think you mentioned, that there's this you know, opportunity for people to have diffusion and do all these things. On the other hand, you know, I'm here trying to write this, you know, this content and somebody else is just going around on the internet copying and scraping and you know, reposting. And, and so you know, it creates, um, and, and I've heard, um, you know, I've heard, so for instance, my wife, she watches these workout videos and then she always gets annoyed when it's a copied video, right? So, you know, somebody will download the video and then post it on their own YouTube page and will collect, you know, a certain amount of money until it gets taken down. So, you know, I think that, that, that this is more common, as you're saying, it's affecting all of us. We can see it in, in many ways. Um, so suppose that you're an artist, right? I would probably, you would probably make more money from me if I went to see your concert than if I bought your album, right? And then if I stream. So the record label would make more money from the stream. You as the artist would probably make more money from me being in concert. And therefore, even if, you know, you lost a couple of dollars from me not streaming your con or not paying for your CD, but I became a fan or you had a large number of fans, it could end up being good for you. I'm not saying that's always the case. I'm, you know, I'm just saying it's possible. And so I think in that earlier model, as long as we associated it with that person, as long as it created a brand for that person, I think that would not be an issue. So, you know, if this person was very famous and so they wrote something and even though people didn't visit their website, but they visited other websites and that made them more famous, I don't think this would be an issue. Um, where I think we're getting into an issue with the, in this new digital realm, and, and I think this has a lot of implications for these platforms, is that, you know, people don't know who we are. And so unless, because there's so many of us, right? And so unless there's a way to actually tie the content back to you, you're not really getting any of those benefits, right? So other than the intrinsic, maybe satisfaction that somebody's going out and enjoying the content you made, they don't know that it's you, Daniel, that wrote the thing and therefore, you, you see what I mean? And so um, I, I think that's where the, the, that's what's kind of different. Um, but there are, is a really interesting platform regulation angle to this. Uh, so I don't know if anybody's familiar with this, con with this company called Content ID. So Google bought them from YouTube, for YouTube, so or YouTube bought them, however you want to, however you want to look at it. Um, what they do is basically they scan content to see whether the content violates some form of IP, right? And then the other thing they do is they provide the option to the content owner: Do you want to? Um, so suppose that you know I 
rip off your podcast and then I post it on my own platform, right? So what I do, is, what they do is they find it then and then they come to you and say, okay, we found this content. We'll give you a few options. We'll ask them to take it down or instead of sending this revenue to them, we'll let you take the revenue, right? And so there's, there's I, I think we're also in a realm where there are these kind of digital and programmatic solutions where it's no longer the old model of you know them sending threatening letters by mail to your house as a way of regulating privacy, piracy, but more having this kind of smart solutions that allow you to get the best of both worlds, right? So if you're the person who's creating this content and we can recognize that it's your content, that there's a way for you to still make it in a way that you would never be able to regulate before, right? And in, in, in some sense, you know, you, you 20 years ago, there's no way that you would have been able to go out and, and enforce um, something that you wrote. So that's that's very interesting. Um, I think the similar technology is also used when it comes to content that is like illegally uh, put online. So to to follow this um, this content if it pops up again somewhere. I think um, Google's uh, also like supporting um, agencies in in that work. Um, you you mentioned in in your piece some other studies um, that look into uh, music platforms and also piracy on, on music. And what I found very interesting there um, and would, would like to, to hear your thought on that. Um, the, if I remember right, then the piracy had not that much of an effect on like the, um, the new songs, for example, that were produced from the artists. Um, and when we compare this to the apps, It had at least an effect on, as you uh, explained, the maintenance of the existing uh, apps and then um, the, the app developers developed new apps. Um, might this be like affected by music being a creative act and uh, musicians maybe like really enjoying putting the, the pieces online and doing the music anyway compared to developing act, uh, apps as a like commercial Uh, endeavor so that would be something that, that would I uh, uh, like to to hand over to you uh, supported with a question what happened to the platform uh, where this uh, all these apps were uh, like listed on and that got uh, pirated yeah so um, about so I'll start with the second question so um, I think jailbreak was a hugely successful like if you look at it and what they did I, I think it's incredible and I think they should get more credit than they get there's tons of you know university professors that are going to get up and say oh you know the iPhone was genius look at it but if you actually scratch beneath the surface it's you know they they have all these weird restrictions and then there are all these things that they you know, tried to stop, but that actually went against them. So, you know, Apple sued these people countless times and all kinds of other things. And they actually, you know, I'm not saying that they're the, the reason for this, this huge success, but I, I think they have an underappreciated role, particularly in relation to a company that was trying to stop them at the beginning. Um, but as time went on, many of the features in this community ended up being integrated into iOS, right? So lots of the things related to themes, The things that you could do with your phone now you could you know do officially on the app store so you don't necessarily need this community um you know things like that that you know i think um reduce the market the the devices themselves ended up being more complex more difficult to hack so you needed a very very complex you, you really needed security experts to crack these devices because 
every time a new device came out, you had to develop a way to hack that device and then, <clears throat> excuse me, basically send that out in a very easy to use format for people to be able to do on their own. So that was, that was I think, a challenge. And then after these piracy attacks and a few of these other things, given that the, there was, given that the movement was kind of in favor of Apple and kind of, you know, the tide was against them in some sense, I think that really ended up hurting them. I think a lot of the folks that were basically sustaining this, um, my sense is that they had a little bit less revenue. And then also a lot of these folks, um, at least, you know, the few that whose, whose career I was able to follow online, you know, they, they're basically, you know, young people that are able to come up with amazing, you know, the, the Apple spends an obscene amount of money developing a new phone and, you know, th this person is able to hack it. Um, and then that person is able to go get, you know, a great security job, right? And so I think those folks ended up getting older. They ended up getting great opportunities in the market, given what they had done. And so really, you know, I think that combination of factors, I believe it shut down in 2018. Um, but at that point, I think I was less, um, I was I was following it a bit less. Um, and I think, you know, this, this combination of factors, factors kind of contributed to it. Um, you you asked this question about difference between music and software. I think there is a difference. Um, what it gets me to think about, and I think that's what's behind your question, is to what extent any of this is really going to affect my incentive to create, right? And I think that's the narrative. I mean, I gave this reference before. Um, I remember, you know, early 2000s TV ads. So like back when we still had TV and back when we still had piracy. There were these things where you would have, you know, TV ads saying like, oh, this is killing music. People are going to stop listening, et cetera. But you yourself could say, well, do I really, like, if I think about the people that want to make music, are they doing this because it's going to make them rich, right? And, you know, you might say, well, probably not. Um, and so I think that there's that element, which is kind of, you know, how much is this affecting your, your marginal probability of getting, getting out there? And the answer is probably not that much. Um, but there's the flip side, which is to think about, you know, diffusion, right? So in terms of software, something like the App Store, which I think has helped resolve a lot of piracy, it manages this IP. So if I, meaning, sorry, App Store on your computer, also on your phone to some extent, right? It manages the IP. It does a lot of this, these things that, you know, make piracy difficult, but also resolve a lot of the problems that you would have had initially in terms of searching, find a product you want. Um, you know, they basically make it so you can release your software and they provide you with that diffusion channel. If you're a musician, I think the way that people, you know, if you had a song that was being pirated, that was being shared, you could get potentially far wider diffusion than if somebody had to go to, you know, HMV or whatever was the, the, the music vendor to go and buy that um, you know, CD. So, you know, I think that, that, that's a, a different part of it that I think in music, that diffusion aspect is far greater. Um, and, and I think that was something that the old business model in some sense kept a lid on that now under this new business model has, has changed. The other dimension, which I think is, you know, where you could contrast with movies is I think that movies are incredibly expensive to make um, and television as well. And so, you know, I don't know enough about music, but I get the sense that it's not such a, you know, it's not as if, um, it's super expensive to make one type of album versus another type of album. Like there's not a big difference. And so within uh, television or movie, you might have seen a shift in terms of how much they're spending on certain content, right? Whereas I would imagine that in music that that's not happening. 
Thank you very much, Milan. It's it's a pleasure to listen to you and to talk with you uh, about uh, you know this paper, but more probably about platforms. The time we have with for these episodes is is coming to an end, and we'd like to ask you the final question. We started asking you how you got in the world of platforms and what is a platform for you. We are somehow creating you know a collection of answers with this uh, with this podcast. And now we'd like to look uh, at the future. We know we are in a world that is changing so fast. The world of platforms is evolving in a, in a way that was incredible just a couple of years ago. But if you look ahead, what do you see? What's coming for these huge companies that we mentioned today that work on such a different way in comparison to what it used to be? So, I mean, I think there are so many things that could happen or that are happening that it's it's really difficult to pick one or pick, let's say, the dominant one. Um, but at least something that I've been thinking about um, quite a bit is, uh, you know, I mentioned, so, so this also came out of some recent projects, but I mentioned this idea that we're all building on the same set of tools, right? And I think this was something that very early on I had from this idea of, you know, basically IP. And as I mentioned, we have these projects where we're looking at IP. Like, what is the implication of the fact that we're all building on the same set of tools? Um, but then there's a whole set of other questions that kind of made me think about that. So, you know, I have one paper where we're thinking about what is the, the fact that we're making these tools, are they actually making products better or are they making them worse, right? And I think, you know, we have that paper, it's, it's under review, but it's, it's, it's going to this question very similar to what we're, you know, finding here in terms of so if you're building on a, so Apple gives you an SDK, for example, or is it some kind of toolkit? Um, you know, it's it might end up being less buggy. It might end up being less, you know, have fewer errors, but it might not also be super novel, right? Because that we're all building on the same underlying technology. Um, and so that's just one example. But at the same time, you know, these tools are becoming prolific. Very few people are making apps by starting to code up, you know, if you, again, to go back to, in time, if you took an HTML class, you know, if you tried to make a website 20 years ago, you did it by learning HTML. Now you're, I can't imagine anybody going to learn HTML in order to make a website, right? Learn HTML is some like retro thing. Um, so, you know, you, you kind of, I think very much in a similar way, we're going towards using these tools and then studying what's the implication of that, right? What does it mean that everybody on the platform is using the same platform tools? Um, we have another paper or I, with, with some co-authors who are thinking about mobility. So what, what's happening as a consequence of the fact that everybody's building on the same tool. So we now all have the same set of you know, underlying skills. Like we've all, you know, if we're doing econometrics, we're using Stata, R, Python, right? We're all using the same set of tools before we might've done it in different ways. You know, what's, what's the result of that? So these are questions that I think from a platform level, um, they're having an important effect. Something else that I've been working on that's similar to this paper that's got me thinking about there's a tension between kind of the reality and the, the discourse, if you will, um, is, is kind of around these big platforms and, and you know, the acquisitions and, and their kind of position in the market. So, you know, I think there's been a lot of debate, at least in the U.S., about should these platforms be allowed to acquire, should they be stopped? Um, and we, you know, we have a paper looking at that, but I think the broader thing is that if you're thinking about who, you know, who is Facebook acquiring these days, they're not acquiring another Facebook because there's not another Facebook for them to acquire. So, you know, in the end, they're ending up acquiring these companies that are like Google acquiring content ID. They're allowing them to very solve a very fundamental platform problem. 
but you know, content ID on its own would never have, at least in my opinion, would never have been as big if it hadn't been part of Google and YouTube would not have been as big without that. And so, you know, there's some definite complementarities. And so I think that there's interesting questions around where these platforms are going to actually, um, you know, th these kind of synergies and what do they need in order for them to be successful. And then having a, you know, once we remove these pieces to say, okay, these are things that are not creating weird, you know, antitrust conditions, can we actually focus in on where these problems are arising, right? And then we could have a more focused and a more sober conversation about the impact of things like antitrust. And I think there's a lot of interesting, um, you know, some, some, some friends of mine have done work where they've looked at like what happens when GDPR or something comes into place, right? And that also has similar implications of thinking about like, okay, well, you know, when we start regulating these platforms or when we start thinking about what actually happens as a consequence of this and, and, and really understanding that. And so I think that's another area where um, I don't know necessarily how much work I'm gonna do, but I think there's gonna be a lot of interesting questions around for these super large platforms, you know, how do we make sense of them? Um, yeah. Very good. Uh, I also see, especially the, let's call it low code movement uh, in my world uh, with the traditional firms that try to build or access B2B platforms there. Uh, they, they, there's a huge trend uh, definitely and uh, that, that, I, that I also see. Milan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I think it Thank was you a, so much for having me. It's I think it was pleasure. a very, very good uh, discussion. I, I'm yeah, super positive that we could make this beautiful piece uh, more accessible to a wider audience. Of course, we will link the piece uh, in the show notes uh, so that, can, that people can, can read it if they want to know all the details. Um, if people want to get in contact with you or follow your work, Milan, what's the, the best way to do it? Um, I am, uh, you know, they, they, they make fun of me uh, at work for kind of not being great at sharing my work. It's almost like I want to keep it a secret. Um, but, you know, if anybody wants to, to reach out, I mean, I'm, you know, my, you can find my email um, and Merrick at marshall.usc.edu. It's on the, it's on the school website. You can Google me. And I think I, the one place where I try to keep my research current is my Google Scholar. So that's a way um, you could always check in on, and see how things are going or see what stage things are at. Perfect. We will link that as well. And Danya, last word. And thank you, Milan. It was amazing listening to your paper. It was very, very cool chatting with you about piracy going back in the days and talking about what, will, what may happen in the future. Maybe we'll be having the, chat, the chance to chat again on another project soon. Thank you for accepting our invitation and see you around. Absolutely. Thank you so much again for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Um, as I said, it's always flattering when somebody finds your work and finds it interesting. So I really appreciate it and very nice getting to meet you guys and getting to know you. Hopefully we can do this in person. You know, some, some, uh, con some, some, some crazy, you know, revolutionary idea of an in-person podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I see this coming. I see this coming. Yeah. Thank you. So bye -bye. hear you in the next episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Talking About Platforms. To support our work, 
you can rate the episode or leave a comment on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to hit the follow button so you don't miss out in the coming episodes. If you want to look up at the papers we have discussed or other topics we addressed, visit talkingaboutplatforms.com. There you can find the show notes and get in touch with us. Until next time, when we're again talking about platforms.